Good morning, Bethany. Yeah, there is a lot out here. Um, This morning, we are going to be reading from the book of Luke, chapter 4, starting with verse 31 through 44. Give you a second for that. What a message of power in this um, passage. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he, crowded, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out? And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. Some of you can relate. Uh, And they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him, and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Pam. Well, we are continuing the Gospel of Luke, as we just read. Uh, Our series entitled Accomplished Among Us, we started it in the Christmas Advent season and then we've just kind of kept going and we will keep going up until about May and kind of take a a break at chapter, end of chapter 9 for the summertime and then kind of come back in the fall to it. But as I was preparing this week, the phrase that kept kind of running through my mind as I was preparing for the message this week, maybe you've heard the phrase before and we're going to explain it, but the phrase was the vicissitudes of life. What does that mean? Vicissitudes of life. It's the ups and downs of life. The inevitable change that comes in life to all of us. That word really means kind of an up and down change. It's the experience of living life in an unstable, fallen world. Ups and downs. Our emotions go up and down, don't they? Our health goes up and down, doesn't it? Our bank account and 401ks, right? Up and down. Our relationships go up and down. Church attendance goes up and down. Support for politicians goes up. A lot of times down, huh? (laughs) A teenager's popularity goes up and down. 
Sometimes even our trust in Jesus feels like it goes up. Sometimes it feels down. Maybe you feel down today, even there. Life is full of vicissitudes, ups and downs. And it's in those ups and downs that we sometimes, I think, feel most helpless or feel the need to cry out to Jesus in trust. In our story today, we're going to look at the lives of some people who've had a lot of ups and downs, the vicissitudes of life. They are brief little stories, or maybe snapshots, you could call them. But I, as we start, I don't want you to forget that behind each one of these people, a demon-possessed man, a Peter's mother-in-law, and the countless numbers that came to him for healing, behind each one of these people, they're real lives, real people who had real stories and real loved ones who went along with them on these journeys and the ups and downs of life. And the reason I thought about this was because in the middle of all this, these lives, all this chaos, these ups and downs in Luke 4, Jesus, I thought of him kind of like a steady laser beam that's cutting through. Or like my cousin used to tell me, the kid, the kid hack when you're a kid and you pour a cup of soda and you pour it really fast and, and all of a sudden the bubbles are rising up. Do you know what you do to keep it from uh, overflowing? He said, you wipe your nose grease off your finger and you stick your finger in it. It's a kid hack, all right? I I don't know, but I I got your attention now, I guess. You stick your finger in it and it calms it down so it doesn't overflow and get sticky all over the floor and you get in trouble for stealing a cup of soda. Jesus enters into these up and down, bubbly, frothy lives of ups and downs and he brings this steady laser beam presence of authority and power to put things right, to bring the kingdom rule and reign to the Galilean countryside. The close of chapter 4, that's what this chapter is about. He brings his authority and power right out into the open, exercising it over both the spiritual and the physical world. He sticks his finger right into the foamy mess and he calms it down with his authority and power. But not only is this a testimony of the power of his words and who he is, but it's also a great display of the compassionate heart of Jesus towards people. In the vicissitudes of a broken world and in our own battles today now for us against sin and against sickness. So let's find today, here's what we're going to do. We're going to find hope and stability and grounding today by looking at three incredible truths about Jesus' authority in our ups and downs. So hopefully you've got your outline there. Those of you that like to fill in and, and keep track or make notes, those that are in growth groups, you've got the questions in the back there. And hopefully you've got the text open to Luke 4. Let's look at our first, our first big truth, Jesus and the authority of his words. Jesus and the authority of his words. Remember, a quick summary of chapter 4. Jesus had had a showdown with Satan. The devil defeated him. And today he will run into Satan's minions, some demons. And remember, then he had left his hometown, Nazareth, where he claimed the role of Messiah by preaching that he fulfilled the role of this mysterious figure in Isaiah, who would come and free and release people from illness and bondage and oppression and slavery and make things right. But once they finally understood the sermon and its implications that they were just as spiritually sick, even more so, Then the outsider Gentiles, remember what they tried to do to him? 
throw him off a cliff, kill him. They wanted to murder him, the hometown boy. So understandably, he leaves his hometown, right? He travels to Capernaum, which becomes kind of his home base for ministry throughout the Gospels. And it's the hometown of multiple disciples, and Peter, Andrew, James, and John, who we'll meet in coming weeks. And again, as we come to the end of the chapter, we see him, what's he doing? As was his custom, as was his habit, he's attending church. He's attending the synagogue week in and week out. There are no ups and downs for Jesus in his synagogue attendance. He's steady Eddie. He is there. He shows up time and time again at the place where God's people meet. And he's teaching and preaching again. And Luke tells us they were astonished at his teaching. And astonished in our English translation, it's not quite strong enough. It, it means the word there that there was even a panic that set in when they heard him teach. A shock that set in when he spoke. Why would that be? They'd heard teachers. They'd heard preachers their whole life. Because he spoke with an authority unlike anybody they had ever heard before in their presence. When you hear me preach a sermon, or pretty much any preacher, my sermon is a a, a conglomeration of some of my own ideas, some of my own illustrations, but also the ideas of commentators that I've studied and sometimes other preachers' illustrations as we use and borrow, and it's a mixture of all those things. But it's always checked against others' work. It's always checked against the text. Rarely, I would say, rarely should a preacher have an original interpretation after 2,000 years of Christian exposition and study. I mean, I think it does happen, and there are some places, especially in second, third level kind of doctrines where, you know, it's okay to kind of look at a fresh take on it, but rarely should it be something brand new centered around the core teaching of Christianity. And rabbis of their day taught somewhat similar. They were in an ongoing dialogue with all the teaching that had come before them. Well, so-and-so said, and, and so-and-so said, and, and there's an appeal uh, to, to the previous authorities. Isn't that today? Well, experts say. How many times do we hear that today in our era? Experts say. Well, well, which experts? What are the experts on? Um, experts say. But here comes Jesus, who just flat out says, I say. I say, I say it. He didn't just preach about God's word. He preached God's word. When he opened his mouth, it it was shocking to them. It caused panic to them. I mean, sure, Jesus quoted the Old Testament and he, 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 he reads it like his own autobiography, but most of his words and teaching are just spontaneous revelation that come from him. And it was clear and convicting when he taught absolutely cut them to the heart. It was clear in its simple use of illustrations and parables and straight to the point. And it was convicting because we've already seen in Luke's gospel, the Spirit has anointed him. He is upon Jesus and giving him a probing insight. It was clear and convicting. His authority of teaching. And it panicked them almost. So what do we make of this? This first truth, this first point for our life. What, what do we do with this reality of Jesus' authoritative words. Well, first, if Jesus is God and his word has all authority, you and I should not be surprised that when we read God's word as individuals or corporately as a church 
or even collectively with the eyes of our, our city, our town, our culture, we should not be surprised if it contradicts us at some point. What do I mean by that? It has to disagree with us and challenge us at some points, and many of them are really big points. If you're someone who has struggled with God's word and struggled with what it contains or what it says in there, do you realize that if you read the Bible and agreed with every part of it yourself, you essentially would be God? <laughs> it's His word. Of course, it's going to challenge us. Of course, it's going to challenge you. And it's going to challenge some very dearly held beliefs for all of us. His word should actually be the thing that reads us. They were shocked when Jesus spoke it, they were panic stricken in some ways. We don't first and foremost read the word, it reads us. Of course it's going to contradict each and every one of us in some place in our life. It's going to do that in every town. It's going to do that in every culture. It's going to do that in every nation it comes into. If it is the authoritative word of God, of course it's going to shine a light on something. And there's going to be some place you feel like, I don't know about that. I kind of disagree with that. If it's truly God's word. We all struggle with authority, and Neil prayed about that today. Uh, our elder chair, Neil Leland, prayed about that today. Authority in our life. We all struggle with that. From the bumper stickers that read, don't tread on me, <laughs> to maybe our snarky comments about our boss, to coworkers. I, even this morning, the idea of covenant membership in the local church for some of you. That's a stretch for some of you. Authority, actually, whether we're willing to admit it or not, is the human heart, it's something deep down in we actually despise at times, if we're honest, if we're honest with each other. But here, Jesus has no problem speaking with ultimate authority, absolute authority. And maybe you're here today and you're exploring Christianity, or maybe you're here today and maybe you used to be part of a church culture or church life, maybe that's you. And maybe you're reading the Bible for the first time and you just find yourself, or coming back to it, not liking parts of it. Let me suggest this. Instead of letting that be a sign of its faultiness, maybe you should look at it, or can't you possibly look at it as a sign of maybe it's, its truthfulness? Or at the very least, maybe think, well, maybe I've been wrong on this. Of course, it's going to contradict and even wound us, I would say, at some point in our lives. As it comes to his word, you have to let God be God. You just have to. Last week, I talked about how each of us needs at some point to be kind of offended by the humbling claims of the gospel if we're truly to understand our need, sometimes our own self-righteousness, our own pride. Well, this week, I would say we should actually be wounded from time to time by the word. You should actually feel it sting from time to time. Amy Carmichael, the great evangelical missionary to India who gave her life serving in India said this, if you've never been hurt by a word from God, it's probable that you've never heard God speak. <laughs> Each and every one of us should consistently be bringing our lives under the authority of Jesus' word. 
At the same time, asking the Holy Spirit to reveal to us ways in which thoughts, actions, attitudes, desires need to be shaped by God's word. It's the only true authority we really have. So let it hurt you. It's a good kind of wound. Okay? Let it correct you. Let it, let it convict you. Or, or here's a question. When was the last time you prayed to have God's words wound you in a good way? Maybe never. Maybe you haven't. Or, or let others use it on you. When was the last time you gave someone permission to speak correction into your life? Maybe it's just with a spouse or a friend. Like, what do you notice in my life? Maybe it's in your growth group or your DNA group. Could you maybe speak to me just a little bit? Like, what have you seen going on in me? Anything that I'm not seeing? I mean, think about how radical that would be if we did that with our spouse. <laughs> well, that might be too much permission. I don't know. That might be opening too much a can of worms. But seriously, though, I think we should, we should be open to those kind of things if we're really going to change. So like Paul says to Timothy, this authoritative word, do your best. This is the Awana theme verse. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. They were hurt by Jesus' words, shocked, astonished, panicked. They were put into a state of shock. So let us be too. It's a good hurt. It's a good shock to have. It's our first truth. For the ups and downs of your life, the vicissitudes, we need the authoritative word. Here's our second truth. Jesus and his compassionate authority over spirit and flesh. So he had authority over words as God, but he also shows us in this passage, Luke does, his compassionate authority over spirit and flesh. Here we look at the three snapshots now that I talked about up in the introduction. The snapshots of Jesus healing a demon-possessed man, Peter's mother-in-law, and then the crowd, the crowd that just flocked and came. Well, it doesn't take too long where Jesus is standing in the uh, synagogue teaching with authority. It doesn't take too long for there to be a revolt against Jesus' authority. Who shows up first? A demon. A demon-possessed man. Demons are mentioned some, I think, 23 times in this gospel. You know when you were a kid and you would lift up a giant rock to see all those bugs squirming underneath? Anybody do that as a kid? You, you went outside and uh, we got some good bugs here. You lift up the rock to see them squirming underneath. Well, well, here is, that's what happens. And you don't have to go very far to find the enemy at work against Jesus. In fact, do you see where it's taking place? In the synagogue. The, the, the efforts of the enemy come right into the camp of God's people. We shouldn't be surprised in church life when we find the enemy trying to do things even in our midst because that's exactly what he's doing here. He's in the synagogue, this demon, possessing this man, and we see him squirm like a bug that just had the rock pulled off on a sunny day like today. The rock is pulled off and he's exposed to the authority of the Holy One of God, he calls Jesus. Remember, what are demons? They are created beings. We need to, that's, we need to be clear about that. They are created beings. They're not eternal. They were actually created angels that fell from heaven and rebelled in heaven, actually, against God's authority. Talk about going to the center of things in the throne room. They rebelled in heaven against God's authority, and now they're intent upon waging war against God and his people. 
you maybe have heard the verse in Paul says in Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And this demon is squirming. (laughs) He's a bug exposed. He's nervous. Look at verse 34 with me. Ha, he says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. He's aware. He's aware. He knows what's going on. He's aware of the power in the room, and he literally says, "Uh, what do you want with me? It's like he's saying, leave me alone. Are you going to destroy us now, or is that going to be later? I think he knows his day is coming sometime, but he's like, is it now? Why are you here? And he uses the true name of Jesus. Did you catch that? Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of God. Why does he do that? He's not trying to curry or gain favor with Jesus. But in the same way when my mother used to say, Jeffrey Richard Jennings? Do you know what that means? When you heard all the names, all the names put together with that tone of voice? That's kind of what's happening here. There used to be an ancient belief that if you knew someone's full name, in some way you could exercise authority over them. Kind of like when mom said your full name, right? That's sort of what the demon's doing there. That was the best example I could think to try to help us understand something like that that we don't really believe anymore. But whatever it was, that if you said the full name, you could exercise some authority over this purpose. The demon's basically trying frantically everything he can. And where there are in history records of the strange incantations and rituals, there's some weird ones if you read how they try to perform exorcisms and and get rid of demons, bizarre stuff. What does Jesus do? Just says a few words. Just says a few words. Literally, Literally, he says, put a muzzle on, is what he says. Be quiet, literally. Put a muzzle and get out of him. And again just as you and I would be, because we think that demon possession and miracles happened every day in the ancient world. No, 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 no. They were shocked too. Maybe a little more frequently than we see today they happen, but they were shocked too. Shocked and awed and overwhelmed that here stands one who controls the spiritual realm too. Not only his words, but now his words command a demon. Maybe think of the words of that, my favorite hymn, Martin Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. The Prince of Darkness Grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Jesus just just needs to say the word, and this demon is deflated. Hey, look at that guy. (laughs) I want you to think for a minute of a child playing with a balloon. And it's a balloon with a scary face on it, or, or this massive hot air balloon, which has got the stereotypical devil, horns, and pitchfork representation that's been thousands of years in culture, actually, um, that image. When it's full of hot air, it looks big, looks menacing, looks larger than life, looks capable of a lot. But what happens when a child blows a balloon up too much? Yeah, it looks bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And then it pops. It pops so much that it can be hidden in the child's hand after that. Or a pocket as shredded rubber. Or like the balloen here. It's going it's to end up being stuffed into that trailer. 
from that size, and actually the basket probably will end up taking up more space than the balloon once it's deflated. So Jesus, with just a few words, a pin, deflates the spiritual enemies. Maybe we should sing um, one little word will pop him instead of fell him. <laughs> pop him. He just is done. He's, he's deflated. He's done. He's gone. Like a scary looking balloon that you just need to pop. That's all Jesus had to do. There's no dualism going on in the Christian worldview. What's that? Good and evil and the, as if they're equal forces, yin and yang, that's what that symbol means, like two sides of a coin, equal power. No, no, no. Satan and his demons have always been on God's leash. Always. Always on God's leash. And they always will be. And Jesus just says one little word, pop, he's done. Luke goes on also to give us a short snapshot of Peter's mother-in-law showing his power over physical infirmities as well. This compassion against not only the spirit, but the flesh, the physical world as well. You know the feeling. Some of you at home watching are maybe feeling it today. You're in bed with a fever, shaking, achy. And, and just, you ever had that hurt? It hurts so much that even like the molecules of air against your skin hurt even. That's just the worst feeling, isn't it? Well, Peter's mother-in-law is in a situation like that. She's in dire straits. This is a bad fever. And he rebukes the fever again with just his words, and it's gone instantly. This isn't some Tylenol and check three hours later with the thermometer. This is gone. Because we see she's in total gratitude. What does she do? She gets up and she serves. The sign of uh, any good follower of Christ, when blessings come out of gratitude, we serve. She gets up and she serves. And what ends up happening, the story, the word spreads, doesn't it? And by nightfall, the entire town, Luke records, has brought their ill and disabled and possessed. What did that look like? Poor Peter and his wife and their house and the mother-in-law. I mean, it just must have been surrounded by illness. You ever had to go to the uh, crowded ER before? A lot of you have. I have. I was talking to Mary, one of our nurses here, um, over the last year and through the COVID season, and she's an ER nurse, and she's just told stories to me about how things have gotten just crazy at the ER for a lot of reasons, understaffed, lots of illness going around, and throughout the pandemic, and it hasn't really let up, she said. Maybe you haven't experienced that like a nurse has in the ER or a doctor, but you have some sense of, feel, of what it feels like to be surrounded by a bunch of people that need a lot of help. If you've ever been to a crowded ER, you know what that feels like. Or maybe that's just a Saturday morning when your kids jump on your bed at 6.30 a.m. Maybe it's that feeling too. I don't know. It could be either one of those or might be similar. But imagine... Illness, disease, sick, demon-possessed, all closing in on Peter's house. They hear what he's done, and they come just surrounding Peter's house. And we read in verse 40, Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. He laid his hands on each one at a time, and healed them. What are we meant to see here in this, this kind of third snapshot of these healings? What are we meant to see? 
Well, some believe that the emphasis here is the healings, and there is truth to that. There is truth to that. Jesus has authority over the spiritual and the physical world, and he can heal at any time, and so we should pray for healing, and many of you have in our lives, and many of us have seen what we might even call the miraculous. But these miracles that happen, I actually think they're not out of the ordinary or against nature or against reality. What they are is they're actually little hole punches. Have you used a hole puncher before? You punch a hole in a piece of paper or something. They're little hole punches into the kingdom of God. The kingdom has arrived. The king is here. They're little hole punches where the light of reality or the way things really are going to be, they shine through these little hole punches, these people's lives. That's reality. That is what eternity will be. The miracle was the hole punch through which the entire new heaven and earth had a place to shine through. It is the kingdom breaking in. And while I cautiously, I don't think there are individuals that have any more the unique power or unique gift of healing like Jesus and the apostles. I'm cautious there. I don't think it's there in the same way because we're in a totally different era of revelation. But I do think Jesus uh, can heal and still does. And so we should ask, you should ask. And that is a big emphasis in this passage for us. But just as important, I would say, in this passage for us, is the compassion of Jesus and the general character and goal of his ministry that we get from these verses. Here we see Jesus. What do I mean by that? We see Jesus risking. He's laying his hands on every person, these sick people. If you know anything about Jewish law, you didn't want to get unclean by touching those who were sick. But here we see him pushing towards the goal of overcoming the effects of the fall and sin and sickness and physical disabilities and and spiritual oppression and mental anguish. You name it. He's going at it. He's moving towards them. He's even touching them. He is touching them. Jesus could have just waved his little finger, like placing it into the fizzy soda. (laughs) He could have just waved his little finger and everybody in that town could have been healed instantly. But he doesn't do it that way, does he? He doesn't do it that way. Why does he do it this way? One at a time and laying his hands on them. Why did he do that? I think he wanted each and every one of them to have an experience with him. Every one of them. He wanted to look each person in the eye with compassion. He wanted them to see his eyes seeing their eyes. And he wanted them to know that he saw uh, their eyes, they saw his, and he wanted them to probably see his smile, his compassion. He wanted to give each one of them his presence. Not just the healing, not just the healing. He wanted them to have him, his presence, himself. To let them know, I see you. I see you. I know what you've been through. 
and I'm coming for you. That's what's important here. Because healing in our life comes through relationships. Healing comes through relationships, by knowing others, by being known, by sharing what you're going through and sharing back and bearing burdens together. Jesus comes to them and says, I'm here, not just to wave my finger or stick it in the, the, the soda and make it all go away. No, no, I want you to have me, not just the healing. I see you. So for us as a church, for us as the people of God, while we can't promise a healing, I can't, I can't guarantee a miracle the way Jesus could or the way the early apostles could. We can find hope. Look at the character of Jesus. He touched every one of them. We can find hope. We, we, we can be together in our ups and downs and our struggles and whether they're physical or spiritual or, 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 or mental. We can give our presence, can't we? You can give your presence to someone. We can give our hand. We can give a look with our eyes. I see you. I know what you're going through. Let's, let's, let's come together. Let's approach Jesus together with this. We can give each other our presence. And we can partner together as a church. These healings give us this hope. We can partner together as a church to utilize every resource at our disposal to love one another. And fight together against the enemy and the ravaging effects of sin that has hit each and every one of you and your family and your life. We can do that because we've seen these little hole punches here. We have hope that on the other side of that hole punch, that's what's coming to all of us someday. Each and every one of us. So we pull together because that perfect healing and wholeness is coming. Whatever resources we have to combat the vicissitudes, the ups and downs of life, because we serve the one who has authority over all. And what did they do? They came flocking to Jesus. They come out of the woodwork, you know? They're coming out of, they came through roof at some, roofs sometimes. Remember that story? Like They came out of the woodwork, literally. They came to and found him. But I have a feeling that many of you stay hidden. Many of you stay hidden and keep your ups and downs kind of private. Especially the ones that carry the most stigma in the church. And we have our own. We have our acceptable sins, unacceptable sins, and the two shall never meet, and don't mention the second kind. I mean, it's one thing to let people in on your COVID diagnosis, right? To pray or another to enlist people even to pray for your cancer. That's good. We should do that. But what about what's going on inside of you? That's kind of one that has a little more stigma to it, doesn't it? What's going on inside of you? How many of us will let people in on our struggles with depression, anxiety, discouragement, hopelessness, loneliness, Worry, lust, the inner darkness. Not so many of us, right? <laughs> I wonder if we think, will they run if I share or tell them? Will they leave the room if I share? Here Jesus lays a hand on every one of them. 
He didn't run. And we can't either. You can't suffer or heal alone. Do you hear that? You cannot. It's the way God made us in relational community type of beings. He's, in, he's been in an eternal community together himself, the Trinity. You cannot heal alone. And you weren't meant to suffer alone. And there's a stigma to that inner junk that's going on in all of us. It's called sin and our nature that we're battling. There's a stigma that the enemy would just love to keep there so that you suffer alone in silence and you don't let people in. I get it. It's scary. And you shouldn't just do it with any single person. It should be somebody you trust and know, which is why we need relationships and growth groups and DNA groups and Bible studies. We, we need to know each other and do this. The enemy would love to keep that stigma there so that we hide. I want you to hear something from me. I want you to hear something. I have gone to Christian counseling in my life multiple times. Multiple times. In fact, I'm going right now every single week. <gasps> But what if you think, uh, yeah, I would like some counseling. Or maybe hearing that, let that stigma kind of drop for us a little bit. Let it kind of go. And as you hide your ups and downs, let that stigma go. The enemy would love that for us to keep that. But what if you think, you know, okay, that sounds great. I would love some counseling, which is one of the resources we have to battle this battle. But I don't think I could afford it. Let me tell you something. I, I want to talk about our deacon fund for a moment. We've got some wonderful men and women, deacon and deaconesses, and our deacons, uh, the men oversee this fund that we have. We have a really healthy deacon fund right now hovering at about $20,000. Now, I don't share that so you'll stop giving to it. <laughs> Please don't. We need it. We use it. Money comes through that often, and we will go through it. And maybe just mentioning it now is my hope. It's going to get utilized more. But it's one of the ways we compassionately come together and fight together. So if you're thinking, I would love that, but I, maybe I could afford 20 bucks, 50 bucks a week or a month. Or, you know, don't let that be something that keeps you in the dark. I mention it because if you are suffering internally because of some sin or shame or anxiety or depression or anger and you want help but you just can't imagine you can afford it, could you reach out to a staff member? Could you reach out to one of our deacons? Could you reach out to an elder? Could you just call the office? Could you just email me privately? You could. One of the ways we use that fund is to help people battle the ups and downs of life with counseling. Or maybe you're thinking, well, I don't know, maybe counseling isn't for me, but I'd like someone to talk to and to join in my ups and downs of life. Can I ask you to consider our DNA ministry? It's a ministry of three men, three women that get together in, in intimacy and privacy and read the Bible and just talk life together. Maybe that's a good fit for you. There's a clipboard on the welcome counter. You can put your name on it today. See, we need each other. We need to use every resource we have to love, encourage, and grow together because Jesus is the compassionate, authoritative business of putting things right and making us whole. But you have to be known. You have to risk be, to be known by others and be ready to know others. And you've got to be ready to do a lot of hard work. 
Healing comes through relationship. But here's our final truth we'll close with today. The second one, Jesus has authority over the spiritual, the physical. The third one is this, and the reason to hope that you don't have to stay the way you are is that Jesus and his ultimate kingdom authority. We're going to look at that to close. This is the first mention at the end of this passage where Jesus speaks again in the synagogue. They want to keep him for themselves, don't they? Hold on to him. Don't let this guy go. He's doing so much good stuff here. But he tells them, I've got to go and preach about the kingdom of God. It's the first of 32 mentions of the kingdom of God in Luke. That's a theme for us, right? The <laughs> One of 32 mentions. And so we're going to revisit it. But look at verse 43 with me. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. What's the kingdom of God? Theologians and, and smart people, smart, way smarter than me, have debated it for years and years and years. Here's a simple definition. As I said, we'll, revi- we'll revisit it a lot. But Kent Hughes called the kingdom of God, Jesus' activity, the kingdom of God is Jesus' activity in bringing salvation to men and women, And then the sphere, which is thereby created by making these new beings, new creations in Christ. The kingdom of God had a past because God was always present, ruling and reigning over the world. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And in Luke 11, Jesus speaks of past saints, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as part of that kingdom. It's had a past. And what was present where Jesus was, right? He's the king on earth and present in the lives of his spiritual kingdom citizens, but it's also true it has a future, as the little hole punches show us. Of these healings, there's a future. And I want us to see this here today as an encouragement to seek change, seek growth. It's a past, it's a present, it's a future, even as the new heavens and the new earth will come. Jesus' kingdom, all authority kingdom, the kingdom of God. You're probably familiar with this image. It's the image of, uh, uh, I think it's called Christ the Redeemer in Rio de Janeiro. To get a, a sense of perspective, there's a little people at the bottom there, so it's really big to give you perspective there. Uh, you're probably all familiar with it, and I, I like that image because it, it gives us at least some mental picture of the image of the kingdom of, of God overall. But even that's too small, actually, really. Uh, okay, so if that's too small, imagine Christ standing with one foot on Mount Hood and the other foot on Mount St. Helens, looming another 14,000 feet or so above that. I mean, even that's too small for the kingdom of God overall. All right, so think about one foot in the Atlantic and one in the Pacific. That a little bigger? And then 5,000 miles hovering over earth above that, this figure of of, of Christ overall. But even that's too small, actually. Okay, so imagine him surrounding the millions of galaxies, and and that gets a bit closer, right? When Jesus says, I've got to preach the good news, the kingdom of God. Jesus asks us to pray this too, doesn't he? Your kingdom come, your will be done. This is not a a prayer for people that want to stay the same. Your kingdom come, your will be done. It's a prayer of people who know their need of grace, who feel the ups and downs of life, and they hand themselves over to God so he can do as he pleases with us in our lives. So many of us don't see change because while it's easy to pray for Jesus' future kingdom to come, what does it look like for him to reign supremely in your life, 
in your heart right now? I mean, it would look a bit different for each one of us, wouldn't it? But to pray thy kingdom come now in all sincerity will change us. You will change. Use me in your kingdom. Can you pray that? Can you commit to keep praying that? Use me in your kingdom. Lord, your kingdom come. I want us to pray together now. Would you stand with me? You know the familiar words. Let's say them together. They were there? They're, oh, they're not there. There they are. Okay. Say them with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us for evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.